Some of you probably know that today is a very big week for me. The, maybe the men in Wednesday night Bible study remembers, but some of you may not. But uh, this Friday is my PhD dissertation defense. So I've written this big paper. If you want to like, like lift it back there, I got it back there. If you want to, I don't expect any of you besides Paul, of course, to actually read it. Um, but I have to go in front of my two professors. I think there's two. There may be more. And when I go in front of them, they will. I have to do a 20-minute presentation on what my dissertation says. And uh, after my 20-minute dissertation, they will uh, grill me on it and ask me a bunch of questions and whatnot. I'm not sure how many people will be there. Um, one good thing I have going for me, I have an overly high sense of self-confidence. So even if there's a lot of people there, I'm sure I won't get nervous. And uh, if I pass that, then I will be on my way to graduate in December. So this is kind of like the last major hurdle for me to be able to jump over. So just pray for me this week as I do it. And uh, I've got a million people to thank. And as time goes on and whatever, I'll be thanking lots of people. And obviously, Paul is the one of the number ones and, and my wife and whatnot. But I, I thought I'd give a special thank you at this time, uh, you know. When I first started at Sunnyside, uh, I asked if I could take a little bit less money in order to be able to spend more time on my dissertation, and, and that was uh, worked out, and that worked out has worked out great. But, you know, that could have gone a couple different ways. For example, one way that could have gone, and one way I was worried that it might go is something like this. Hey, can I, you know, I'm going to be gone a little while, you know, I'm going to miss a Wednesday night or whatever, can I, I work on my dissertation? And that could have gone something like this. Well, you can. How how long are you going to be gone? You know, um, yeah. you got to be another week. You know, you're going to be gone. And let me tell you, I did not want to work on my dissertation. I did not want to go up to Kansas City and work on it. I did not want to spend another minute on that goofy thing. And even just to have people passively kind of insinuate they were not for me doing it would have just motivated me all that much more to not do it. And I just appreciate each of you that even whenever I talked to any one of you or if ever I was gone a little extra for it, every single one of you was, get it done, we're behind you, and I really appreciate it. That really helped me do it. Because I did not, I, you know, it was just, I'm, I guess in the big picture I wanted to do it, but man, in the, and there were moments in time where I didn't. And there was a time, I remember Rob and I were talking and I kind of was really worried about having this conversation. Rob and I kind of feel like this sort of pictures uh, the how thankful I am I, I was talking to him and I I was I was really nervous about asking this and I said Rob I, I think I really need to take a, just about a whole month where I'm not here on Wednesdays and most of the week probably about Monday through Friday I'm pretty much in Kansas City writing my dissertation I really need to crank out 100 pages and I was worried there was going to be something like oh a whole month or maybe can be shorter or you know, whatever, I don't know, just something that it was going to be some kind of discussion or, or whatever. And basically what Rob said was, well, I'm sure we can cover for you when you're gone. You know, I'm sure we can f figure out a way to do it and how long you need. You need to get this done. And there was never one questioning about whether I should do it or anything. It was just, you know, how can we help you get this done? And I really appreciate him and all of you that encouraged me all along the way. It's as Dr. Mack showed me his uh, demon uh, project today, he can confess, it, you don't want to do it. Cheryl Hand once told me she used to have to lock Steve in the closet and wouldn't feed him uh, dinner until he slipped two pages out from underneath the door. 
to be able to get it done. So I just thank you so much for all you who have encouraged me along the, right, the way. And please be praying for me as I kind of go through this last uh, step here on Friday. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for this morning as we jump into this text. I just want to have you give us wisdom to try to understand this response and how it might guide us in knowing how we should respond and kind of looking at ourselves and saying, what is my faith like? Is, is it true? And as we kind of examine this person's faith, and we, of course we won't know the full answer of the heart, Lord, I just pray that it would help us to look at ourselves. Lord, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this maybe sometimes in your life you thought about something like this, like, what's true faith? What does it really look like? And today we're going to look at someone in the text in Acts, and we will look at this person, his name's Simon. We're going to look and see, did this person have true faith? And then I want you to think about, as we do, well, if I evaluated with such critique and such carefulness Simon and whether he believed, maybe I need to look myself and what I've believed. So in Acts, we've been going through and we've been seeing how they've been working in Jerusalem, and now we've shifted, right? We were now he's gone to the Samaritans, and so we have a story starting with Philip here in Samaria. So it says in chapter 8 of Acts, starting verse 9, it says, but there was a man named Simon who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somewhat great. Now, there are different types of musicians back then. There were actually some what you might consider respectable musicians. They were really more like scientists. Some, some of them were timed to the Persian kings or whatnot, and they wouldn't have really been like magic in like a demon way or magic really in a tricky way, but just they were doing science. But they were also like an adulterated species of magic, and they were full of quacks and charms and incantations and things that were not true. And so we don't really know exactly the nature of this person's magic. We'll look at a few more and see what we kind of think it might be, because this is a very general term. It doesn't really have to refer to Gnosticism, as some have suggested, or Zoroastrianism, or some proto-form of that, as some have suggested. We just know in some way he was practicing some kind of magic, and he was really thinking himself great, and so were other people. We go on to verse 10. It says, they all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. He had such a following and people looked at him in such a high way, he likely saw himself and likely portrayed himself as divine. The great power, the power of God here, usually is a reference to being divine. He was so incredible with what he could do, people thought. It was magic. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So you can see here that in verse 7, Philip had been exercising demons. He'd been healing. He'd been doing great works, or God had been doing great works through him. And now he meets up with kind of the local celebrity musician, whatever you want to call magician, whatever you want to call him. And now we're going to have a showdown. Now, as we think about what kind of magic this was. I think there are definitely demon-possessed people in the Bible and whatnot, but I wonder if maybe this time it's not that he had the magic of actual power. He was just a great musician. And so I once saw a documentary on all the ways 
pagan religions would trick the people into thinking that God was working in their temples. It, they, were, they were geniuses. So they would have, like they, the one I remember, I don't remember the details, but they had a door and you knock on the door or you did some ritual and the door would open by itself. And of course they had rigged some pretty ingenious way of being able to open the door with levers and whatnot that no one could see. And so everyone thought it maybe was magic. So they got the people to believe. And I want to show you at least part of a video of some examples of some magic that was done in the past in ancient times. It has long been said that the art of magic originated in ancient Egypt. In 2500 BC, a man named Didi, who many call the first magician, travelled by boat down the river Nile. He was destined to arrive at the great palace of Pharaoh Khufu and use his magic to entertain and bewilder the Pharaoh. It is said that Didi worked wonders in Khufu's palace and became known throughout the kingdom for mystifying and fooling the Pharaohs. He performed miracles that no man should be able to do. This is what he performed. Didi took a piece of cloth and after showing both sides, tore it up into multiple tiny pieces. The Pharaoh watched carefully as Didi did this, trying to see if there was anything suspicious going on. But he saw nothing. He then squeezed the cloth into a tiny ball in his hand and cleanly showed the pharaoh the ball. He placed the ball into his open hand and snapped his fingers. Upon opening his hand, the torn up pieces of cloth had restored themselves and become complete again. Magic, do we? So you can see, you get a few of these going, and people might see and believe that you are somehow divine. I could be wrong, maybe it was really a demon-possessed situation, I don't know, but that would be my guess, is he actually had just fooled the people into think he was something great. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both women, men and women. So Philip comes onto the scene. Philip had been casting out demons. He'd been healing. And so now people are following him. So what is Simon going to do? Is it, is it a war? Is it a showdown? Is somebody going to switch teams? Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. You know, if part of the reason I think what he did was trickery is if you've been tricking everybody, and you kind of know it, and then someone comes along, and they're not tricking everybody. And you kind of know it. You might be convinced of how real it really was, right? Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, 
he was amazed. Now, was this a true conversion? Was he sincere but confused, as we'll see some of his later actions? Or was this just a, I'm just really into a way, this guy's like a way better magician than I am, so I'm just going to kind of like follow him around for a while. Because we'll see that Simon asked to have something, and he's greatly rebuked. Verse 14, now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Hmm. So we kind of make a little shift here. If you would be looking in your Bible, this is probably like a paragraph break or something. Because Philip's no longer on the scene, or at least he's not the main character of the scene. He's probably there. He's just not the main character of the scene. We've switched to Peter and John, and we've brought them over from Jerusalem. Now, why did we need to bring Peter and John over? Like, what was the need to bring them around? Philip had witnessed to them. He was doing great works. Just like the disciples were, did he, was he deficient in some way? Why did the disciples need to be present? And I am going to argue this. There's, very, there's various arguments. I'm just going to give you, give you mine to kind of save us some time. I think they came because I would argue that every time the gospel came to a new people group, like a, a major group of people. So Jerusalem was accompanied by signs and wonders and the apostles. Then we have the Samaritans. And then later on, the Gentiles. So when we, we were, as we're spreading out, this, the apostles coming and being a part of it is a verification that the same thing was happening to the Samaritans that was happening with the Jews. Because what are the Jews going to say when they hear the Samaritans also have the Holy Spirit? The Samaritans? Probably not. I'll see it. I'll believe it when I see it, you know. Or maybe at least they'll believe it if the apostles say they see it who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So they'd had faith. They'd been baptized, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, uh, the disciples, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you this. Is, is prayer from someone else what's required to receive the Holy Spirit? Is, is faith one step? Baptism another step? And then receiving the Holy Spirit another step? So I'll try not to get too in the weeds here. But if you're a Methodist, theoretically, you may not believe this, but theoretically, if you're a Methodist, you'd say something like this. If you're not saved as an adult, you get saved. You get baptized. So they say, when you get saved, you do get the Holy Spirit. So you're going to heaven and all that. Then you get baptized. But then you have a third event in your life. And this is called entire sanctification. The Holy Spirit comes to you in another event, and after you become entirely sanctified, you no longer sin anymore. It's kind of complicated. So I've probably told this story before, but 
Dr. Myron asked one of, his, one of my professors, he, he got a master's degree. He got like a thousand degrees. It's hard to keep track. But he was taking classes at Methodist school. I'm not sure whether he ended up getting a master's there or not. But he's taking a degree at Methodist school, and he was learning about the sanctification. So he asked the professor, what happens if I, you know, hammer, drop something on my foot, or what was, you know, slam my hammer on my finger, and I utter words that no good Christian should utter? You know, what happens? And the professor says, no, that's a sin of surprise, so it doesn't count. So I'm not sure how quite this entire sanctification thing works, but apparently somehow there's this extra event in your life where you are um, entirely sanctified, the Holy Spirit comes in and empowers you. And it sounds like there might be another event like this, right? They, they were saved, they were baptized, and then they were prayed for and the Holy Spirit came. If you're a Pentecostal, I think it would work like this. You get saved and the Holy Spirit comes and you're saved, you're a Christian. And then I think you get baptized, but then they also have a third event, but this third event is when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do works for God. And this empowerment of the Holy Spirit is marked by speaking in tongues. So the way you know you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit is that you start speaking in tongues. And then there's some people who I don't know who they are anymore because I've forgotten. I didn't reread the book. But there are some that see four. Saved, baptized, Entirely sanctified, empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and those are all separate events in a person's life. Okay. How does it work? Well, I would suggest this to you. First of all, there's no indication that there was a defective faith in the group. Were these Samaritans like not getting saved legit, so they needed legitimacy from the apostle to really be empowered the way they needed to be, and without the apostles, they never could have been? No, I think the apostles came to verify to the world that God was working with Samaritans, not because the Samaritans were doing something wrong. Also, I would argue this is a very unique situation. The lying out of hands isn't always done. As a matter of fact, it says that they might receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't even say how it was manifested. Did they speak in tongues like in Acts chapter 2? We don't even know. As a matter of fact, the Spirit comes with faith in Acts chapter 10. So if we read in Acts chapter 10, while Peter was still saying these things, we'll get to this in details later on, but the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For while they were hearing him speaking in tongues and extolling God, then Peter declared, Any, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing the people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So in this case, it seems like they received the Holy Spirit prior to being baptized. Much less did they need someone to pray for them in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? hopefully you're at least slightly confused, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, then asked them to remain for some days. So what I'm arguing here is that in Acts, it's done in multiple different ways. And there's not a clear pattern on how it's done. See what I'm saying? If we picked this story and only used this story to say this is how we have to do it, we might be tempted to say something like, you get saved, then you get baptized. Then maybe the elders of the church or whoever need to come for you and pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. If that was, this is the only one we have, we might think that's the way we always have to do it. And I once had a pastor tell me, he was my pastor, he was my youth pastor. He said, you always got to be careful with stories and acts creating theology. I think he even said it stronger. He said, if you try to create, if you want to make like a big permanent change 
and how the church does things, and all you have is passages in Acts, you likely will not convince me. Because Acts is this time of change, right? Everything's changing. Everything is happening. So I'm not suggesting that none of this can happen anymore or it's all impossible or something like that. I'm just saying you can see in different situations God decided to do it in a different way. And so in this way, did it happen that it was salvation, baptism, pray to receive the Holy Spirit? Yes, that's exactly what happened. Is that the way it happens every time? No. Okay, so hopefully that was a long explanation to say it doesn't have to be this way, okay? Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying out of apostles' hands, oh, now we get back to our story. See, this is where our author is going with this. He sees this. He believes. He gets baptized. But now he thinks that the laying on of the hands and the praying, that's the secret sauce. That is what the apostles can do. That's the magic that the apostles have that he wants. And he offered them money. He's like, how do you do this where you can lay your hands on people and they suddenly are filled with the Holy Spirit? If I give you this money, will you tell me how to do it? You know, there's only two other times the Spirit is given by the laying of hands in Acts 19.6, Acts 9.17. It's actually not the way it's always done. But he had seen one thing, right? He just thought that they had this particular magical power. Sometimes spirit comes with charismatic utterances. Sometimes they don't. But he thought, this is how it works. Give me some of that. And he's saying, give me this power also so that on anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where we get the English word simony. Have you ever heard of the English word simony? If you look at the English word simony, it's the definition is the buying or selling of ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical meaning church, like the buying and selling of church privileges. For example, pardons or benefices. So, let's say I wanted to become the pastor, Leo wanted to become the pastor. Leo and I were both running for the pastoral position at Sunnyside Baptist Church. And I decide I really want to be the pastor and I don't want Leo to be the pastor. So then I go to the church council and I say, listen, I will give you each $10. (laughs) I'm not going to have a lot, right? So I give you each $10 if you hire me instead of Leo, right? And that would be simony. So in the Catholic Church, and I'm sure it's happened in non-Catholic churches as well, people buying positions or people buying, you know, in the worst cases, of course, was when you'd go to the church and you say, I've sinned, and they say, oh, give me a certain amount of money and don't worry, we'll pardon you, right? They, they've gotten, the Catholic Church has gotten rid of that practice, but they did do it for a long time. That's called, that's called simony. So the first legislation passed against simony was at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, where purchasing or selling promotions of holy orders, including the episcopate. So if you are a Catholic or Episcopalian, these words might mean a little bit more to you. Priesthood, the docanet were prohibited. So they said you cannot buy these positions. The matter would be taken up by many future councils, as, though, as through the centuries, simony became more widespread. 
eventually trading of benefits, blessings, oils, or other consecrated objects, and paying for masses, paying for church services outside of the norm, was included in the fence of Simon. It was a big problem. And Simon is the one it's named after because he's the first one in the Bible that we see here in the New Testament that offers money in order to have these benefits. As a matter of fact, when he did it, he probably thought this was normal. It was really not that uncommon in the pagan temples of his area probably to buy these positions. So he probably thought he, was, he wasn't even doing anything bad necessarily. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. This is an extremely severe rebuke. As a matter of fact, J.B. Phillips, when he did a paraphrase, it, he tried to, in order to try to show how strong it was, he said, to H-E double hockey sticks with your money. I mean, this is like as bad as you could say in the strength of rebuke. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the, to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Commands him to repent. Now, yeah, this guy, he's clearly not, not a Christian. He was a magician. He fooled everyone. He repents. He messes up big time. He's got the chance to repent again. Is he going to fulfill this repentance and truly repent? And this is where we have to decide. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Was he sincere or not? Obviously, we know the real answer is we, we can't read their heart. We don't, we, we don't know his heart, so obviously we can't really know. But I'll give you a couple things to think about. A lot of people I read did say this doesn't sound sincere. You know, like, if you're a kid and you get in trouble and your parents say, if you don't repent of doing that, I'm going to, you know, like ground you. And you say as a kid, well, I hope I don't get grounded. But that doesn't exactly scream repentance, right? So at least in this translation in English, when I read it, it really sounds like, doesn't sound great, right? But I would say this, it's very possible, and I, I don't know, that a real way to show humility, and not a, not, a, not a fake humility, it sounds fake to me, I, I don't know if it sounds, it's, but a way to show, maybe the way to show humility was to say, well, let's, I want you guys to pray for me, because, you know, I'm, I'm being humble and I want you to pray for me. So maybe this was a proper response. I, I don't know. I, I kind of tend to think it, it was, um, but I, I don't know. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned that they, as Peter, John, probably even Philip, because Philip seems to be leading from Jerusalem in the next passage, to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to the many villages of the Samaritans. And we look at this Simon, he he, he seemed to repent, and then he gets himself in a situation that we kind of question whether he truly is repentant of that situation. 
You know, that, that's many of us. Many of us have, have made that decision to get saved, haven't we? Hope, I, hope, I hope that's all. It's not, I hope today would be the day. But you know, we do dumb stuff sometimes, don't we? We mess up. We make mistakes. We do stupid things that when we look back at it, we have hardly anything other to say than that was stupid. And if we would look at our lives, would you be able to say, yeah, they've truly repented. If, if people looked at us when we repented, with the same scrutiny, we might be tempted to look at Simon to see, oh, is that really a legitimate thing? Uh, sorry there. If people looked at us with that same scrutiny, if they looked at whether we changed our behavior and show, really demonstrated that we were really repentant, that we really had turned from our ways. If they looked at us with the same scrutiny, would people say, oh yeah, definitely a Christian. Definitely, no doubt. Or maybe you know, we have been saved. Man, we do stupid stuff. And maybe when they look at us, they go, not only do we do stupid stuff, I'm not even super convinced they're all that sorry for it. I just hope that today, if there's anything in our hearts where we, when we've done something stupid, because we, we have, that we in our hearts and that people would be able to see from our actions that we have truly repented and that there would be no doubt that we are Christians and that we have turned from our wicked ways. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the story of Simon and Lord, we know it's Oh, the temptation to buy power or try to get things that we want is great, and, and he did something stupid. And Lord, I just pray that times when we're tempted to do things that are, that are stupid, that are wrong, that are sinful, that we know we shouldn't do, that we would be able to turn to you and resist temptation. But Lord, at the point at which we realize we've messed up, Lord, may we truly return, may we truly repent. May we truly confess our sins. Because you, we know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.